the original recording of this message was lost. Here is a recap of September 23's message, Retro God Chastity. Good morning and welcome one more time to Encounter Church. Uh, certainly glad that you're here. Uh, hey, you may have seen on the worship flow sheet when you came in today that the theme of the morning is capping off our Retro God series. And more specifically, the theme is Retro God Chastity. And chastity is uh, what we're going to refer to under the overall umbrella of, uh, of sexuality and everything that uh, that sort of entails. And, and I just want to open up by acknowledging that uh, uh, Chris and I have been married for just about seven years now. And I just want to admit that has uh, in no way qualifies me to speak authoritatively uh, about sexuality. Keeping that in mind, we're going to go to a place, we're going to go to an author uh, who I think uh, is better qualified, more authorized to speak about sexuality. Uh, we're going to go to the Bible, we're going to go to the book of Song of Songs. And what I'd like to do is do uh, like a flyover of the entire book. Um, and we're going to see this in, in five movements throughout the song, throughout the poem. I wanted to call them uh, five encounters, uh, but I was told that's just like way too cheesy. And so we're going to call those five movements in the Song of Songs. Hear about what the author has to say. Uh, before we get in, just a note about the, the song and, and a note about how we get at the topic uh, for the morning. Uh, first of all, maybe you heard two uh, sources or, or two directions, uh, two uh, ideas about what sexuality is like uh, today. Uh, on the one hand, it seems like the messages that we get from uh, about our, our sexuality uh, from uh, parents, from relatives, aunts and uncles, if you're close, uh, from older friends, from uh, church groups, from pastors, from youth leaders, from Sunday school teachers, from mentors, is, is we get this idea about our own sexuality that it's it's somehow um, somehow like bad or, or or somehow wrong, and you can just kind of see how a parent is teaching their child about sexuality and, and sex, and they just want to to impress on that kid, like, listen, just don't do this before you're ready. Just, just stay away, for heaven's sake. And there's a sense in which we can't quite blame them, right? They're just looking out for their kid. But then there's this other view. Uh, other view of uh, of our sexuality that's just blatant and it's just as powerful and it's everywhere. We can see it in the the grocery store checkout aisle with the glossy magazine covers just putting uh, sex out there and saying if you're not participating in this thing, if you're not sexually active, no matter what your age, then somehow you're not normal. You're not fitting in. You're you're. Odd. You can turn on TV at prime time or any time during the day or night. You can turn on the TV and see like reruns from Friends from the early 1990s in Seinfeld. Uh, and we can see that sexuality, again, it's just everywhere. It's out there and it's flaunted. It's almost in your face. And so it's easy for us growing up to, to get these two kind of messages about sex. And even if like the church parent category wins out something happens when we get older and and we we grow up we might you know get married uh engaged and we start thinking about sex and realizing that parent 
group, that church group, that we should just need to stay away and flee from sex, that doesn't really work anymore. I mean, it's a, it's a faulty perspective. It's a faulty or failed worldview, or it's at least outdated. It just doesn't work for this new stage of life. And we're left, unfortunately, with this old this old worldview that, that, that we pick up from magazines and TV and movies, this in-your-face kind of sexuality. And there's something deeply broken, I think, about that too. But unfortunately, for so many of us, it's the only thing we have left. It's the only frame of reference. It's the only perspective we have. And so this morning, we're going to go into a, a new perspective, a new author. We're going to go to, like I said, the book of Song of Songs to hear about to hear about what God's view of sexuality is all about. Uh, just a quick note about Song of Songs is um, this is a, this is a book of the Bible that uh, finds itself in an interesting place in the Bible. Uh, you know the uh, the Bible is organized chronologically, um, like Genesis in the beginning, God created, and you know like the first things, and then it goes on to to Revelation, the last things. Um, you know, in the end uh, of of what of everything, and then like the middle stuff. You know, so it's organized like chronologically, but it's also organized uh, categorically or topically. So it's like smooshed up together. You have all these Old Testament history books, First and Second Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, um, like all the books that says, and then he was king, and this is what he did, and then he was king, and then this is what he did. Um, and then there's also these other books, uh, which is like the, the prophetic books, which is uh, a prophet saying to the, to the king or to the people, this is what God says this is what god says in between those two subjects or those two categories there's these books like uh proverbs which is the boiled down kind of wisdom that's that's god ingrained into this world proverbs like hey by the way the borrower is slave to the lender (laughs) those of you in college are like yeah i'm picking that one up real fast (laughs) taking out student loans uh, just how the world works. Train up your child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. it it's something that just sort of has this kind of staying power. Like you want your kid to turn out a certain way, raise him a certain way, teach him a, a certain way. Uh, would it be interesting to note that that the Song of Songs, this, this book on sexuality, it isn't written in the history part of the Bible. It isn't written in the, the, the prophets part of the Bible. It was written in the wisdom part of the Bible. Which is to say that, that there's something just true, this lasting truth about our own sexuality that, that's true, not just one time, not just back then, but it's true sort of like all the time. And so as we open up the book of Song of Songs, we're going to see that this is a song or this is a poem, not just about one man or one woman a very long time ago. This is a song, this is a poem that's true for all men and all women everywhere. This is a song, this is a poem that's true for you, true for me. 
Uh, you'll see in the worship flow sheet that you're handed on, on the way in today that um, it's a retro God, throwback ideas God still cares about. And the topic specifically is chastity. Just a quick note about chastity, why that word was chosen. Um, you could insert a lot of words here, but I love chastity uh, because we think it's this this ancient kind of uh, like abstinence or like not participating in something or like withdrawing from something like sex. When actually chastity, in the retro sense of the word, uh, chastity means not abstinence, not withdrawing, but chastity means uh, holiness. A chastity has this like this purity sense to it. So that it's possible to be fully what you might say today as uh, sexually active, but also chaste, but also holy, but also pure all the while. And so it's possible, like you might have seen on the Facebook page, um, this, this caption, this note, um, we're going to explore this morning, uh, sexy chastity. <laughs> Let's open up the Bible to, uh, to Song of Songs, and we're going to take a, a, a few selections out of it. Like I said, a flyover passage. Some of these are, are uh, her talking. Some of these words are him talking. Um, words are printed on the flow sheet and also on the words uh, behind me. Open it up, and, and the flow sheet says Song of Songs, chapter 1, just like right off the bat. I want to read the, the third verse here, and this is her talking. Uh, movement number one, pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. <laughs> I just love that. It, it feels like um, it feels like this young girl who's just head over heels in love in love with uh, like a teen band heartthrob, right? It's like she's talking about Justin Bieber. Uh, the No wonder the young women love you. She is just, just smitten for him. And later on in that same chapter, we can see uh, he's talking about her and how the earrings lie uh, on her neck. And, just, and, and he says the same things about it. He looks at her and she looks at him and they make eye contact from across the room. And they're both just in love. I call this first movement just, there he is, there she is. They see each other, and they like what they see. Movement number one. Movement number two uh, kind of ramps things up a little bit. We see in uh, the first part, the first uh, half of chapter two, uh, where they're lying under a, under a shade tree. And, and the description there is that his hand is, is around her waist on her lower back. His other hand is behind her head. It's, it's this picture of a close embrace, as we can see, a really close embrace, right? Something has happened from just making eye contact, seeing each other uh, from across the room and uh, seeing each other from across the room and liking what they see. It's, uh, we've moved on from that and now they're together, they're embracing. And then this line that's repeated throughout the poem, throughout the song, that just says it perfectly, uh, where she says, my beloved is mine. And I am his. I call this second movement just, I belong. It makes um, 
perfect sense to say, I belong. Or my beloved is mine and I am his. Because she does belong there. And when he says, my lover is mine and I am hers, he's right. They do just belong with each other. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible, chapter 2, when God is making men and women and he's making them in his image. And, and the words that are described there, uh, the words that the author uses, the Hebrew words, um, are the words, um, God made man, ish, and woman, isha, in his own image. And, and he says, out of the man, ish, God created isha. You remember the story, maybe, the, the, when God comes in and, and, he, and he says it's not good for Ish, for man, to be alone. So he'll make a helper suitable for him, uh, the Isha. And he takes, um, puts Adam, in this, the, the man, in this deep sleep, and he pulls out a rib from uh, the man, the Isha's side. And he, from that rib, he, he forms Isha. And so literally uh, and figuratively, um, the woman the Isha was taken out of the man, the Ish. And so you have these, these two that are, that are separate, but yet they, in some, sense, in some created sense, they also belong as one. Uh, interesting to note that as the, the church has gone on to explore this theme of sexuality and, and just what it means, even our word sex comes from, a, from the Latin word sect, uh, which is like a, a sect, S-E-C-T, as in a subgroup of another, uh, and, and like a, a, a split along the way. And, and so we can see that the, the, the sects of the Ish and the Isha are, are, are separate, but also this created oneness that God intended for them, for them to ju- just be together, to, to belong, to j- dwell together, to join Together, She's right when she says, My beloved is mine and I am his. It is exactly what God intended. But then something happens. Then something happens that, that, that wrecks that plan. It's a movement number three. Um, we're going to read... Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. This is her talking again. And she says, All night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but I didn't find him. I'll get up now. I'll, I'll go about the city, through the streets and the squares. I'll search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but I did not find him. You can just imagine the scene, right? Their their beloved is mine and I am his. This great love story. But then one time at night, she reaches her hand over in the bed and she expects to feel warmth. But then she reaches her hand over and and nothing. And so she pushes further uh, in the sheets and, and expecting something warm, but then all she feels is cool, is cold. And so she, she wakes up and looks over and he is missing. He is gone. Thinking that maybe he got up, was around the house somewhere, she calls for him and no one answers. 
Fearing the worst, she, she then leaves the house, goes out into the streets, calling his name, calling for him, hoping, praying, wanting him to answer. But she's looking for him and did not find him. What was it that she was fearing? Was it the case that, that she was perhaps fearing the loss of just a terrific sexual partner? I mean, is, is that at the core of her, of her fear? If that was you, is that what you would be afraid of? You see, I don't think so. I think that that core fear of hers is something more, something so much profoundly deeper than just the loss of a sexual partner. I think that this sense in which I belong, I was made, the Isha and the Ish to be together, I think that even the, the act of sex points to something much deeper, something much more profound than just how it feels good, how often we want it more. I think it's deeper than that. I think it has to be deeper than that. Otherwise, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have this fear of, of loneliness when we reach over our hand and expecting something warm and feeling only cold. I call this movement uh, longing to connect because I think that it's more than just longing for another sexual experience. I think the, the Isha and the Ish long to connect meaningfully with each other. Like I said, it's not just about trying to connect with a terrific sexual partner and, and fearing the loss of that. It's fearing loss of, con of human connection. Um, for example, uh, let's look at what happens for just a minute when you have um, sex without this connection, this deeper connection. And, and let's also look at what, it, could it be the case that you can connect so much deeper? Can you connect even without having sex? Because I think that's what sex is all about. Sex is about this connection. Sexuality is about expressing this profound connection together. So, for example, there are these people in the world who, who have sworn an oath not to have sex with anyone, to lead celibate lives. Paul says um, in the New Testament um, that it's good for some not to marry unless they're going to burn with lust, and, and in which case they probably should marry, he says. Um, but no, no, it's good for some not to marry. Paul has this idea in mind that in order to, to serve the kingdom, for some people, it's good to lead celibate, sexless lives. I, I think 
there, that is the case, um, you would think that that would be just denying our own humanity, our own created um, uh, uh, selves, our own sexuality that God gave us. But no, no, no. Instead, try to view sex as one expression of, of what it means to connect so much deeper, so much more profoundly uh, on, a, on a new level. Um, these people that have taken this oath of uh, celibate, sexless lives. Um, one of them was uh, Mother Teresa. This is a woman who spent her entire life, uh, life connected or, or, or pouring into the world's most impoverished people. I mean, the world's have-nots. She's serving Calcutta, India, and just giving herself over to these people. And I would, I would argue, I would understand that this, if, this deep connection that God is, is longing for us to have, to long for in, another, in other human beings. That Paul's right when he said it's good for her not to marry, but to, to be sexless, celibate, in order to more fully connect with other human beings. You could even call that sexual energy, as odd as that sounds, this, this desire to connect with other human beings. On the other hand, there does exist the possibility that what about people who have sex without a connection what about people who who go through life and have sex with multiple partners and it's not about connecting to another human being meaningfully at all but but instead it's about a feeling gratifying a desire isn't that possible of course it is. We already hit on it. All you need to do is turn on an episode of a rerun of Friends or Seinfeld or something, and you can see it's absolutely possible. But what happens? In, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes about the, the Ephesian people. They're giving themselves over um, to their own uh, lust and, and, um, and, and sexuality. And he describes that in terms of, of, of losing themselves and losing their sensitivity. It's interesting that Paul uses the, the phrase losing their sensitivity as they're giving themselves over to this thing. Um, it's almost like, like they're becoming more and more calloused along the way. Uh, this language has been widely accepted in addiction recovery circles for a long, long time now. Um, that uh, the, the saying is, um, uh, just one more, um, but a thousand isn't enough. It's this idea that the alcoholic uh, comes into uh, alcohol or, or substance abuse um, by, by one or two. And, and maybe that's enough in the very, very beginning. But one and two quickly become three and four, which quickly becomes five or six or ten or twelve or, or eventually any number just there is not enough on the planet to satiate that desire because the the sensitivity all sensitivity has been completely lost they've been completely calloused to the effect and paul simply applies that concept that idea 
to sexuality. And, and to say, can you without what sex means, which is this deep down profound connection to another human being, can you have sex without that? Absolutely. But you run the risk of callousing your heart to the point of, of one day of left unchecked, not being able to connect meaningfully with another human being at all. And by the way, this is exactly the danger of pornography. Because, because pornography at its very core is, is the, this act of, of, of sex, twisted as it is, without any connection to another human being, with connection to just images on a page or, or videos on a screen. And, and that has its, its way of callousing our heart, losing all sensitivity, and, and eventually, if left unchecked, not able to connect meaningfully with another human being at all. It, it's seeing people as not image bearers of God, but... but but objects used for your own calloused desire. And that's what the woman fears in Song of Songs. When she reaches her hand over and feels only cold where it should be warmth, she fears not just the loss of a terrific sexual partner, but she fears loneliness. She fears that, that maybe she won't be able to meaningfully connect anymore. As the, the song continues, she, uh, she looks through the streets. She gets friends to go on and, and help her uh, look through the streets, run through the streets, calling his name. And then the chapters that follow, she, she calls out and he answers it turns out uh, he didn't leave her at all. I mean, he, he left, he's, but he didn't leave, right? And so they get back together uh, again, or, or I should say they, they were never apart uh, in the first place. And, and so um, she connects with him again, and, and they celebrate their love, and there's like, you know, uh, all kinds of words and uh, things that they share after that. Um, but we, we move on, and this is why I think that these movements in the song are not just over like a day or two or, or a minute or two, but they're over, I think, weeks, I think even years, possibly even decades. Because of this next line, I think a lot of time has passed in movement number four. Um, it comes to Song of Songs 5, verse 2 and 3, where, uh, where um, it's, a, I slept... But my heart was awake. And this is her talking again. Listen, my beloved is knocking. And this is what he says. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my love, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of night. Apparently it's, it's raining outside. And, and he's like wet and knocking on the door and he wants to come in. In this picture is something like straight out of Hollywood. For some reason I imagine a white horse that he's riding on like throwing pebbles up to her bedroom window. You know, and he's like, open to me, my darling, my dove, my flawless one he puts himself so completely out there and she answers i've taken off my robe must i put it on again 
I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? <laughs> like he puts himself totally out there, totally on the, on the, on the line. And he says, open to me, my, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. He's pouring open his heart. And she says, I'd really prefer not to get my feet dirty. <laughs> he pours open himself. And she says, I've taken my robe. I'd rather not put it on again. We can see that there's this inherent risk of opening our hearts to anybody to connect meaningfully, sexually. And there's this inherent risk that, that maybe, maybe I'll be rejected. I'll tell you, it, it starts um, with, a, with a ninth grade, ninth grade dance. Where, where the kids are in these uh, circles, like boys and girls, uh, friend circles. And then you look across the room, and there she is, right? Uh, the, there she is, the, the girl that you have had a crush on for, for like, um, since kindergarten. <laughs> and you look across the room, and, and then there she is, and then she's making eye contact with you. There he is. And, and your friends encourage you, and you build up all this confidence. You're totally psyched up as you like take those um, infinite amount of steps that are five feet across the small crowded room and you walk up to her and you put your hand out and, and you start to ask this question, would you like to dance? And violins are playing in the background as she looks back at you and opens her mouth and just <laughs> runs away runs away from you standing there, runs into the, the girl's bathroom and takes three, four, five of her friends with her. You put yourself out there. You risked this rejection and it just stung. Now, I was just in ninth grade when this happened. And, I mean, I mean, you're just in ninth grade <laughs> when this happened. So you're probably going to get over it at some point. But there's still something there that, that stays true, doesn't it? That no matter when this happens, when you put yourself out there, there is this risk involved. Um, and it doesn't matter if you're just like uh, dating. It doesn't matter if you're engaged or, or newly married first couple years. It doesn't matter if you've been married 10 years, 20 years, or even 30 years long. There's this risk when you put yourself off there and, and, and offer something, offer yourself. There's this inherent risk that maybe it'll be rejected, that maybe you'll be rejected. And so you'd better be prepared for what it would be like if you were rejected. Now, it's one thing to just be rejected for a dance in ninth grade, as painful as that is, but it's another thing when you've offered your, your body to someone and you're rejected. Because those words, my beloved is mine, and I am his, or I am hers. Those words are true. When you offer yourself to someone, it's true that
you don't belong to yourself anymore. You also belong to him or belong to her. You leave a bit of yourself with that person. And so you, you trust, right? What, what's she going to say? Will he be impressed? Will she tell her friends? Will he spread rumors? You, you risk yourself with another. And so I, I just want to offer, be careful who you risk yourself with. Are you willing to trust him? Are you willing to give your life to her? I don't think that you should give yourself to someone unless you would trust your life to that person. And I don't think you can trust your life to someone unless you're at least willing to marry them, or they're willing to marry you. Movement number four is this inherent risk of rejection that never goes away. That this person's heart now belongs to you and yours to them. Be careful with that. Movement number five, last chapter. You can hear this transition take place when they're again uh, reunited, again for the last uh, time here in, in this song. And, and they've been through a lot. And over the course of the relationship, it also almost takes on this tone of looking back. Listen, Song of Songs, chapter 8. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers can't sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. It's in this last movement that I've called Never Alone that this, um, that this song takes on this, this permanent kind of dimension, that this eternal perspective where we see that uh, love is unyielding as the grave. It, it burns like a blazing fire, mighty flame. It, many waters can't quench love. Rivers can't sweep it away. It's, it's like, no, no, nothing is moving it. Nothing is stopping it. Nothing is, is quenching it, right? And we start to see uh, about what love is, is supposed to be like, about what this indwelling, what this deep, profound connection that sex is one simple expression of, what this connection is all about. It's about never, ever, ever being alone. For some of you, this may be your experience. Others of you, uh, this isn't your first marriage. May not even be your second. And so you're looking at these words going, that sounds great. 
I wish it could be true. Wish it could be true for me. It is true for you. It's the first time I think that the, in this short song, we transition into this, this eternal kind of perspective. And I said it's wisdom literature. It's not just about one man or one woman a long time ago, but it's about men and women, all men, all women in general. But I also, also think that God is slipping into this is this connection, this deep longing to connect meaningfully, profoundly with you. I can see Jesus in this, this ninth grade dance circle. And had God walked across the, the dance floor and asked us, I, I think that we would have been terrified seeing his holiness up against our shame. I think it would have made us run crying to the bathroom, taking some friends with us. So instead, God shrouds himself in, in frailty. God puts on humanity. And he takes on this form of a, of a crying baby who grows into an awkward teenager who then became this average Joe kind of kind of guy except he was also God and he also hung on a cross and died for us naked exposed risking himself for for all the world knowing that some would reject him some would laugh. Some would spread rumors. But others would believe. You might believe. And it was worth the risk. You were worth the risk. Let's pray together.